0: Welcome, everyone, to Hot Summer Nights. I'm really glad that you're here. I hope that you will still come back after this week for at least the next three of these. Uh, Some explanation is in order regarding what Hot Summer Nights is, especially for folks like Waylon and Caden, yes? Yes. Uh, Who who are new students and have just recently started darkening the doors of our ministry, but as well as for students that got involved last year uh, or were around last summer when we didn't have hot summer nights because uh, of the COVID. Um, And also just as a helpful reminder of where this kind of fits into the rhythm of of our our life together. So typically during the school year uh, on a Tuesday night, we have worship slash Bible study, which we call the well. And in a typical year, we devote an entire year to a specific book of the Bible. And it's a more or less formalized setting that we do in the chapel that includes communion as well as a sermon slash Bible study type thing uh, and some songs. In the summertime, we do this hilariously thing named Hot Summer Nights, which is a funny name. I just want to note, I didn't, I didn't name it that. I think it's funny and we're going to keep it that, but Hot Summer Nights. I don't know. Okay. Anyway. Yeah. And uh, as the name might suggest, It's quite a bit more casual, deliberately so. Um, In general, it tends to be somewhat more discussion-based. We typically do still go through a book of the Bible. So one year we did Song of Songs, one year we did uh, the book of Hebrews, although a couple of summers ago we went through um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Life Together, Uh, and we discussed that together each week. Um, This year we're doing something substantially different, um, at least in terms of what the the material is going to be every week. Uh, I hope, nonetheless, that it's going to be something that will be edifying for us. Um, But the things that are the same are that it will be casual, that there will be time for discussion um, at some point, and that there will be food. And um, also, uh, something to to take note of this year is that we're doing small groups that will begin this Sunday. So there's a dudes small group and a women's small group that will be led by the interns, um, that will meet here at 3 o'clock every Sunday. So if you're around or want to be, um, do be around and come share life together. And in those times, um, what y'all will be doing is focusing on some aspect of Scripture or something else that I've shared each week and doing so in a way that is directed at sharing life together and knowing one another and being mutually sharpening in a life of following Christ. Um, so Sundays at 3, come to small groups. All right, so what we're doing this year is, uh, I think some, I think the word's already out on this, because someone asked me about it earlier. Yes, no, has it been in advertisements at all? All right, cool. Well, here's the deal. Um, this year we're gonna do my ordination papers. <laughs> um, and I, I feel like I need to offer a little bit of discussion about, or some, say, say, say some things about ordination in general, and ordination specifically in the United Methodist Church, you'll have some frame of reference. So at the risk of making this even more boring than it's liable to be, here we go, what, what ordination is. Um, in short, what it means for people to be ordained to ministry is that the church has always recognized that God has called and set apart certain people for roles of leadership and authority in his church. And depending upon what denomination you belong to, both like the offices of ordination, as well as the process by which people are ordained, not to mention who's allowed to be ordained, Uh, what what are the qualifications, and what they're authorized to do, there's a lot of variance in denominations. But suffice it to say, most things that we would rightly call churches have someone that's the pastor, and they are, they have in some way been formally authorized and ordained to be the shepherd of that community. In the United Methodist Church, what we call the pastor office of ordination is an elder. It's roughly equivalent to what the Catholics or Orthodox would, or the Episcopalians would call a priest. And it is the same thing that the Baptists would just call the preacher, right? Um, Our process, in contrast to some denominations, is what I would call arcane in its length (laughs) and, uh, and difficulty, so it begins with what's called candidacy, and at that stage, the very big, the very beginning, the first step of ordination, you're like a young little whippersnapper that's like, I think God's called me to ministry, and you start writing letters and papers to different people, and different committees of people start interviewing you, and psychologists evaluate you and find out if you're crazy or a sociopath, and then finally you get certified as a candidate or not, and that's just like you get to think about being ordained, um, and then you go to seminary, and you get a certain kind of degree with certain specific coursework, and when you've graduated with a master's degree, you're then allowed to apply for what's called commissioning or to be a provisional elder, at which point you write an astonishing battery of papers that basically amount to, do you think orthodox and faithful things about God and the church and everything else that has any kind of importance, and can you back up what you think with the right sources? Can you show that you are both an Orthodox Christian and that you were specifically uh, a Christian of a Methodist flavor and and show us that you went to school um, and prove that you know what you're talking about? Does that make sense? So that's called commissioning. Um, I wrote my commissioning papers actually the year before we moved here for me to become the director of the Wesley Um, and was commissioned a year later. But just to give you a frame of reference, like my commissioning papers were 176 pages. So it would have been, actually been, I don't know, like seven years ago or something. So, Anyway, I was commissioned a year later. Once you're commissioned, you have eight years.
1: They won't let you do it in
0: less than three, but a minimum of three and up to eight years to complete the ordination process. But once you're, once you're commissioned, which is where I am, you are in practice, by which I mean, in terms of what I get to do, I already am authorized at a level that's equivalent to what other denominations would think of as being a priest or a fully ordained pastor. Does that make sense? By which I mean, I'm allowed to celebrate the sacraments, to marry and bury and baptize folks, and to lead the church. Does that make sense? Um, Which, in practice, like I said, is effectively the same thing as being ordained. Um, But then there's one more step where they're like, remember those papers that you wrote however many years ago? Write them again. Don't plagiarize yourself. Prove to us that you know what you're talking about and you haven't become unorthodox since the last time you wrote those papers. And now prove that you've been doing your job for the last five years in your papers. Does that make sense? Um, So it's a slightly different battery of questions, but still a really long list of questions. Um, And the purpose is both to show theological coherence and also um, to, to try where possible to give evidence of the ways that doing ministry has taught you stuff. About the things that they're asking you about. Does that make sense? So what I'm sharing, what I'm going to be sharing with you, are some attempts to write these papers that I keep kicking down the road and not doing. Like I said, there's eight years total that you're allowed to to take to write these papers, and I'm like on track to maximize to hit the max. Um, and my wife's getting really sick of it, and um, so I'm trying to finally make myself do it. And to do so, to bribe myself in writing these papers. I mean, in short, the reason I haven't done it. There are a lot of reasons, really legitimate excuses, but what it really comes down to is I like hanging out with y'all a lot more than I like writing papers. Um, and so to sort of hijack my own self, I'm like, well, if I make this be my ministry for a little while, then maybe I can get my papers written. Does that make sense? So I'm trying to hotwire my own, my own uh, person, which may or may not be good for y'all. I hope that it is. Um, But here's my pitch. Uh, We're supposed to share each other's burdens, (laughs) Okay, And I really need y'all's help to finish doing this formal stuff that I'm supposed to do so that I can continue doing the stuff I really like doing, which is shepherding uh, our community and and sharing life with y'all. So I would be really grateful if, even if this turns out to be pretty boring, for the next four weeks, if y'all would just keep on coming, and then maybe if we're on a roll, we could do some more weeks after that. Um, it would help me a lot um, to have y'all's presence here. It helps, it, it motivates me. Um, what I'm going to be reading tonight, as I already said, is a mixture of theology as well as some, uh, some examples from ministry. Um, specifically, what I'm talking about tonight is repentance. So I couldn't get super detailed in my examples without, like, outing people in this room, um, if that makes sense. So some of my examples are going to be kind of general. Um, as we read, if you haven't already passed it out, feel free to pass this thing out. Um, I'm just gonna, I'm just, this is, a, as, as I note here, this is a grossly unfinished and hastily written draft. Um, so all vanity aside, or I guess I should say I've had to let go of my vanity to distribute this to you because I literally just basically sat down this morning and started writing This is, and this is what what there is at the end of a day of writing. Does that make sense? Um, So it's far from what I would consider to be like a well-written paper, but I do nonetheless think that there's some helpful stuff here. Um, And then as I note here, (laughs) I just wanna show you guys, do 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 y'all care to see the stack of papers that these questions come from? Yes. Uh, Yes, all right. All right, here's the, here's like one of the pages with lists of questions. Does that make sense? And what I'm gonna do tonight so this is from disciplinary questions part one, I think. Yeah, these these questions are really insane, um, in the sense that they are horribly broad and difficult to find a way to do consi- to answer concisely. Um, so all right, here's disciplinary questions part one, which consists of one, two, three, four questions. Four questions technically. But one of those questions is like number two, which you have quoted here. That's like, how do you understand these things? Repentance, justification, regeneration, sanctification. That's four papers. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and they're all just like, repentance. Go ahead. Say some things about it. So that's what, that's what uh, I'm going to try to tackle tonight. And my plan for the next is basically for, for these four weeks is to, is to take one of each of these each week. Um, so the four parts of one question, basically. So there's, there's your explanation. Uh, I'm going to pray for us real quick, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Here we go. Lord Jesus, thanks for uh, the gift of sharing life with these people. And thank you for the great joy of being called to be a minister of your gospel. Thank you for the people in this room and the many people who have preceded them, um, who have taught me um, so much in the last five years about what it means to follow you and what it means to try to be a shepherd of your people. We pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit tonight and ask that you would open our hearts at the very least to the citations of your, of your word that we're going to read together. And we ask that you would use, um, this burdensome task that is mine for the edification and upbuilding of your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, Here's, some, here's a reading from Acts chapter 2. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. This, by the way, is, is Peter preaching his first sermon in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both hear and see. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, so that your sins may be forgiven. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you, for your children, and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. So those who welcomed his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Okay, in what follows, all I'm going to do is read what you have in front of you. If you're the kind of person that it helps to follow along, feel free. If you're the kind of person who you can just as, just as soon listen to someone reading, you can do that as well feel free as we go along to make notes of dumb or incoherent things that I say that you think need correction, or to just make notes of things that you would like to ask questions or clarification about. And even better, if there, by God's grace, happens to be something in here that you're like, that's helpful to me, and I'd like to talk about it, underline it or whatever, and hopefully we'll, we'll come back to it this evening. Okay, repentance, a description. Repentance is both the beginning and the ongoing rhythm Of the life of Christian discipleship. By this, pause here for a second, what I mean is you start off being a Christian in the act of repentance, and you keep on being a Christian via repentance. As to the former, we come into the waters of baptism, having turned from sin, death, and Satan to God. As to the latter, every time we come to the table of communion, we renew again our repentance from our old life and the embrace of our renewed life in Christ. Repentance pertains not to feelings or thoughts but action and to the pattern and trajectory of our lives. Repentance is a grace in the deformity of our fallen will we cannot turn from death to life except insofar as God makes such a turn possible. The Lord makes such a turn possible firstly through the annunciation of the gospel. The grace of repentance is often attended and made effective through a constellation of related graces the most crucial of which might be the gift of contrition. However, regardless of what graces we do or do not find within our own persons, the Lord has richly provided for all people's repentance in the gift of Christ's body, the church. The outcome or promise of of repentance is simply life in the place of death. Since I'm supposed to answer what the experience of ministry has taught me about this, I say straightforwardly, the experience of ministry has taught me at least three things about repentance. One, that repentance is rare. Two, that rare though it is, repentance is nonetheless a real possibility given generously to anyone who wishes to receive it, that the unfleshed witness of the Christian community is the usual occasion and means through which God gives the gift of repentance. And three, those maybe are two in and of themselves, I'm not sure, but anyway, and three, that scripture is crucial and effective in catalyzing and sustaining repentance. One, the rareness of repentance. Scripture suggests that the gospel is liable to be rejected by its hearers at least as often as it is accepted. The practice of ministry is liable to make repentance seem rarer still. Repentance becomes rare because the ongoing practice of sin does further damage to our already damaged will. As we live in sin, our affections and intellect are mutilated and changed such that we come to love and desire our own death and gradually lose our capacity to recognize and register the harm we do to ourselves and others. Likewise, through the gratification of our fallen passions and desires, our love and longing for God, which, however damaged, are in fact integral to our creaturehood, are numbed. Two, repentance is real and available through the body of Christ. Jesus' own person and saving work constitute the possibility of repentance. And this possibility is typically mediated in the gift of his own self in the body of Christ. When we repent, we are gathered into the church and out of our former membership in the world. The body of Christ is the typical occasion and means of of repentance, because by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the church makes Jesus' own life concretely present in the world. By so doing, the church makes imaginable and desirable what would otherwise be inconceivable to unrepentant persons, that there is such a thing as the life of life, and that anything short of it is death. More practically, repentance invariably begs the question of membership and relationship. The crux of the decision college students face in deciding whether or not to repent, this is true for everyone, but since I'm writing in the context of college ministry, I'm naming y'all specifically, uh, in deciding whether or not to repent and believe the gospel frequently boils down to whether or not they're willing to leave the company of certain friends, and likewise whether they're willing to engender the disapproval of whatever community was formerly primary, authoritative, or identifying to them, whether family, clique, academic cohort, or whatever. We discover both life and death via embodied encounter with other Christians engaged in the shared life of discipleship and witness. The holiness of other Christians is an occasion for us to glimpse and begin to want a measure of life we could not otherwise have wanted. Likewise, though we may not recognize or feel the gravity of a particular sin within our own selves, in the life of the larger community who strives collectively to live under the authority of scripture, We encounter trustworthy conviction and testimony outside ourselves to which we can submit. Um, This next section is largely unfinished, but some of the basic inspiring material for it is here. Um, So there's this quote that I imagine most of you already know from uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, And then there's this longer quote from Augustine that uh, you may or may not know. And I want to read that one to you. And then try to say what this section is about. Um, so this is Augustine at the moment that he actually is converted uh, in, in confessions. Um, well, or that his conversion is made certain, I, sh- I guess I should say. Um, I was carrying on so, crying acrid tears of heart's contrition, when I heard from a nearby house the voice of a boy, or perhaps a girl, I couldn't tell, Chanting in repeated sing-song, lift, look. My fingers relaxed immediately while I studied hard as I could whether children use such a chant in any of their games. But I could not remember ever having heard it. No longer crying, I leapt up, not doubting that it was by divine prompting that I should open the book and read what I first hit on. For I had heard how Anthony, though he nearly chanced to be present when a certain passage of scripture was read, nonetheless took it to heart as meant specifically for him when he heard, go sell all you own, give to the poor, and you will have heavenly treasure. Only come and follow me. At this divine signal, he turned suddenly to you. So, by the way, um, if you don't already know this, uh, Augustine's confessions are, an, are just an extended prayer. Um, so even though they're, of course, written for the edification of Christ's body, they are addressed to God. And so when he says to you, he's talking, about, he's, he's talking to the Lord. I rushed back to where uh, Olypius was sitting, since there I had left the book of the Apostle, he's talking about the book of Romans, um, when I moved away from him. I grabbed, opened, and read, give up indulgence and drunkenness, give up lust and obscenity, give up strife and rivalries, and clothe yourself in Jesus Christ the Lord, leaving no further allowance for fleshly desires. The very instant, instant I finished that sentence, light was flooding my heart with assurance, and all my shadowy reluctance evanesced. I closed the book, marking the place with my finger or something, and spoke to Olypius, with an altered countenance, after which he told me of what he had been undergoing without my knowing it. He wanted to see what I had read. I showed him the passage and went on to the next words, which I had not read. I was unaware of what followed, but it is this, welcome him whose belief is weak. He found that the words expressed his situation as he explained it to me. He was braced by this encouragement, and it took, no turbulence of tur- it took no turbulence of resistance for him to join me in the promised compact with you, since the moral purity, I think there's a of missing there, of his decision involved, uh, his decision involved, just kidding, uh, he had long been my better, in the moral purity, whatever. From there, we go to my mother, speak with her, she rejoices, we tell her all that happened. It is joy and glory to her, and she was thanking you who can act beyond what we, act, what we ask or think is possible. Since she saw you had granted her far more than she had requested with her pitiable long laments for me, you had so turned me to you, this is very much repentance language, right uh, that you freed me from seeking a wife or any other prospect in this world. by the way, this is an interesting thing that Augustine mentions here because like seeking a wife in and of itself is not sinful so I'm not ever, I'm probably not going to get into this in these papers, but it's worth considering the way that repentance um, can be more subtle than merely turning away from bad things to good things. Does that make sense? But that it can be particular, that it can have like the specificity in individual lives that reveal the way that God has like changed the trajectory of our hopes and aspirations, if that makes sense. I was standing at last on that ruler's edge of faith where you had shown me to her years ago. You changed her grieving into joy, far beyond her intentions, with a chaster, sweeter joy than she had looked for from grandchildren born to me. So there's a lot of stuff um, at play in general in this like section of the paper that I'm trying to write, um, that I think is kind of wrapped up in this passage from Augustine. For one, I, I really want to find a way in my emphasis on the body of Christ being the means by which we typically have the opportunity to repent. I don't want in any way, shape, or form um, to suggest that um, repentance is like a technology that we can perform on other people. Does that make sense? I still want to do uh, everything I can to, to sustain what I've, what I've said at the very beginning, which is that repentance is a gift of God. And I think one of the ways that we, not at all the only way, but one of the ways we can see um, that we have evidences of the fact that repentance is a gift and is not just something that we perform ourselves, is the way that God's word seems at times almost miraculously to be the, the thing that cuts through the agony or the indecision or, you know, our waffling or whatever it is and, and brings us to the point where we're like, okay, I'm turning to Christ. Does that make sense? And so I think that's like the broad reason. I also love... Um, the there is the the evidence of the Christian community here, though nonetheless, right? It's evident in this other friend of his who, if I remember correctly, is also getting converted at the same time, basically. So that the Word of God is active in both of their lives, and that it's on the grounds of the Word of God that they come they, they come to a shared discovery of what it is that God is giving them in the gift of faith. Um, and also, I love like the stuff about his mom. So earlier on in Augustine's story, he he. He devotes a considerable amount of time to talking about his mom and her prayers for him to come to faith, and also to narrating, as soberly as he always narrates stuff, just how very imperfect his mother is, and just how how much like the pure desire for him to know Jesus is also mixed up with these like maybe less pure and sort of typically matronly desires to have grandkids, and um, not to mention like her own theological confusion. Um, she's not quite in the camp that Augustine wants her to be in, right? And yet here we see the culmination of the imperfect efforts of the body of Christ, right? In this breakthrough moment where the word of God brings Augustine to the point um, of conversion. Um, So those are some of the things I'd like to talk about when I finish writing this section on the role of Scripture. Um, And then this is just a passing note here at the the bottom of this unfinished section. The Scripture is invariably a confrontation of God's love for us. And that conversion is a turn from the myriad lies of Satan, which collectively amount to condemnation, to the lie that we're unloved, to the truth, so from that lie of Satan to the truth that God loves sinners, and that he unflaggingly pursues their redemption and restoration. Um, All right, lots more to say about the role of scripture um, in in inviting people to repentance, but moving on. So repentance among unbelievers slash new converts in the practice of five years of campus ministry. Yeah. So in this section, I try to get a little bit more specific. I don't know if I succeed or not in talking about some stuff, like like not just definitions, et cetera, but like stuff I've seen in campus ministry. And I noticed in the course of trying to write about repentance that um, I, I think that like this repent and be baptized thing, that the way that the gospel is always announced, um, that, that the invitation to repent is always a part of the announcement of the gospel, and that if people accept the gospel, that what they're doing is repenting, of something. So I want to capture both like the repentance that is a part of someone crossing the threshold of conversion, um, which is a less finish section, finish, finished section here. Uh, and then the more, the more extensive section is, is on like the ongoing work of repentance for people that are already converted to the faith. So here's the first, sec- first section. The enunciation of the gospel and the invitation to believe in Jesus are inseparable from a summons to repent. A person who knows how to use the word sin is already on the path to confessing the entirety of the Christian faith as contained in the Old and New Testaments. Um, and then here's some, like I said, just some components of what this section is liable to become. So, on the one hand, we have, you know, that repentance and the summons to faith are sort of simultaneous. I think we see in, um, and, and what that means, I think we, we, we get in, in the broad invitation of Christ to his disciples to go along with him. So whatever it means to repent, I think has to do with what I've seen in ministry. It has to, do, for people that aren't yet Christians, it has to do with the fact that if we're doing evangelism right, that we're never just saying, here's some information about Jesus, but that we're like, hey, come live with us. And like, we're, tell- we're going to tell you the truth straightforwardly about who God is. And we're even going to say, hey, I think you're hurting yourself. Like, and the word we would use for that thing that you're doing is sin. Um, and we're going to share scripture with you, et cetera. But it's never merely going to be a transmission of information. It's going to be, we're going to try to embody as a community that sense of, like, hey, let's go together along with Jesus. And that it's in the course of getting mixed up with the body of Christ that, that people be- do, in fact, begin to repent, or at least that they're given the occasion for, for repentance to become evident to them as a possibility. Um, So in the Gospels, Jesus' invitation to to follow him or to come and see. And then on the other hand, the other thing I've got in mind here is the Lord adding to their number day by day those that were being saved. The book of Acts, I think, suggests um, at a couple of points that what it is that converts and persuades people and results in these big conversions that, um, that are recorded in the book of Acts aside from the Holy Spirit, is that there's something really beautiful and compelling about the rhythm of the Christian life uh, that the community is sharing together. And that these believers who um, are, are eating their meals together day by day with glad and generous hearts, that there maybe is room at their table for people that are not yet believers. And so I want to kind of explore the way that I've seen, again, that like people that are not yet following Jesus, like as we make room for them at our table... Um, we preach the gospel to them, and they, and they have an opportunity to turn from death to life. So yeah, beginning to get mixed up with the community of folks following Jesus, um, trying on the grammar of the community. By that, I mean um, that, that inevitably at some point, the conversation we're having with people that are not yet following Jesus is a conversation about talking to God, whether that's in individual prayer or praying for one another at small group or, uh, or singing songs on Tuesday night or on Sunday evening. And um, in my experience, people usually articulate the grammar of the Christian faith. They try it on for a good while before they're actually able to affirm it for themselves, if that makes sense. And I do, I do think it's in the course of that sort of education in the grammar of the faith, which is typically a grammar of prayer and worship again, that like the opportunity for repentance avails itself. And then this last point, participating in the ministry of the community, Um, I'll just use Ryan Ray as an example here, if that's okay. He was recently baptized. And um, we've been wanting for him to be a Christian for as long as we've known him, which is over five years, right? And folks have been talking to him about it um, for a while. So that's nothing new. But at some point over the course of, I don't know, last school year, I don't know when things happened anymore because of COVID, but um, I guess going into this last school year, this last school year, yeah, last summer or something, we started to get a whiff of maybe Ryan was starting to become a Christian. A few of us didn't, and we kind of, you know, we didn't say a lot about it, but we continued to put out feelers, et cetera. And Anyway, but one of the moments that I think a lot of us really started to be like, I think Ryan raised a Christian, was actually... um, at Sunday evening Eucharist, when he preached <laughs> the, the sermon of our worship service. And honestly, like, that's a crazy practice, if you think about it. And, and not one that, I, I don't know, it, it didn't come across my desk before we did it, before we invited someone that we didn't know whether or not he was a Christian to, be, to preach the gospel on Sunday evening. I'm not saying I would have rejected it, right? But I'm glad somebody decided to, to be like, yeah, Ryan Ray should, should preach the homily this week. Because in the course of inviting him to do ministry, even ministry is crucial as, like, being the preacher at communion. Um, Like, it's the culmination of those kinds of invitations, I think, that repentance, like, actually unfolds. Like, that's, like, Jesus does that, though, too. It's, like, as sort of scandalous as that is, if you think about it, that's what Jesus is doing with the apostles. Like, there's not any interval of time between when he's, like, hey, leave your nets, and when he's like, go do stuff that I'm doing. Like, tell people about the kingdom of God and heal them and stuff. And, and then they come back and they're like, we did it. And then they say really dumb stuff, theologically. And obviously don't understand what the crap is going on. You know what I mean? And are not fully converted. And Jesus is like, no, but still go do ministry. <laughs> and, uh, and so I want to try to explore that, the way that um, participating in the ministry of the community is is involved in the turn from death to life as well in other words that in some ways that that maybe before people have even fully repented that they already are caught up in um, the work of the church all right and then there's other stuff here about folks being converted by mission trips um i tell i'm just going to tell you guys some of my tricks right now i tell interns every year that like if you can get students to go on mission trips that aren't christians You got a really good chance of them being a Christian by the time it's over with. So like part of the crux of repenting from unbelief to belief, from going from membership in the world to membership in the church, is that we do in fact live differently. Like Christians think we're supposed to live differently. We think that you ought not do certain things and that you should do other kinds of things that are not at all obvious to people that are not Christians, that those are like the things that you should and shouldn't do. Does that make sense? And so people that who we're preaching the gospel to, they don't necessarily take it for granted that they ought to live by what amount to the rules of the Christian life. You know what I mean? But if you're going to go on a mission trip with us, you've got to follow the rules. Like, that's just part of the deal. It's like, yeah, you want to go to Haiti? It's going to be really cool. Also, you have to commit to to, um, to come to worship every single week, to go to small group, um, to, uh, even if you don't agree with or understand uh, the the norms of, of sexual practice uh, of the church, like you've got to abide by them for as long as you're a part of this mission trip. So, like, if you're screwing your girlfriend, you can't do that anymore until the mission trip is over with, et cetera. You know what I'm saying? Like, and so, but but a person that isn't a Christian doesn't necessarily know that that's life giving. To abstain from those things in those kinds of ways, or to be selfless, it isn't obvious to anyone until they do it and until they come into the community of faith that. Um, you find your life by losing it, and therefore that other people's needs are more important than yours, and that it's worth it to sacrifice the opportunity to do the cool internship this summer that probably could get you a better job later on when you graduate in order to go hang out with people who you don't even share language with them in a country that you maybe are never going to go to again, right? But when you do those things with the church, you begin to get a glimpse of the fact that actually that is life, Right? And, and so the, the, the sort of ignorance of unbelief begins to fracture a little bit. Does that make sense? All right, cool. Um, so, people being converted on mission trips, and then evidences of repenting, including the loss of self-hatred, selflessness, reevaluation of future plans. Moving on, repentance among Christians in the past five years of campus ministry. So, this is among folks that are already baptized. The need for students and interns to repent of sexual immorality has clarified a few further points on the nature of repentance. All right, so sexual immorality is by no means the only thing that folks repent of in campus ministry or need to repent of in campus ministry. It's just a handy category of repentance that has, in fact, helped me, because it's very common, um, to, that has, it has, in fact, like taught me some things about repentance that maybe weren't as clear to me before. Does that make sense? So that's like, it's not because I'm like obsessed with sex or people not having it or whatever. It's just because it has in fact been illuminating. Um, So said need is both, sex has been illuminating. Anyway, moving on. Said said need is both predictable and frequent. uh, And the two forms of sexual immorality most common seem to be fornication and or the habitual consumption of pornography. All right. So here's like the next few categories are like broad ways of defining what some of the further points of clarification are, right? So the first one is self-deception. The pattern of discipleship at Wesley prizes honesty and vulnerability. Every week, students and staff are invited to practice confession in multiple settings, whether in worship, small groups, or in one-on-one hangouts. Students do in fact confess sins of sexual immorality in these contexts with some frequency. Such open admission of sin, especially of a sexual nature, is possible in our community because we embody the Lord's own grace and our willingness to continue accepting and sharing life with persons who are visibly broken and struggling. Um, I just wanna pause here and say that like, for people that are like, have already drunk the Wesley Kool-Aid, it's not that surprising to you to find out that people would be like, to strangers even be like, I've been looking at porn, pray for me. I wanna repent of my sin. Or, um, hey, I hooked up with my girlfriend this weekend or whatever it is. But like, to most Methodists, pastors who are going to be reading these papers, they're like, what? <laughs> um, but uh, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not saying that pridefully, though. I'm just saying it is, in fact, more remarkable to you than it may seem that we have the practices of confession that we do. It's actually one of the very distinctive dimensions of our community. Now, it ought not be rare, unfortunately, in the body of Christ. Confession should be uh, a very normal practice in Christian communities. Um, It is unfortunately not, and it's something that God has really blessed us with, that we have a robust practice of confession in our community. All right. I have learned, however, that there is an important distinction to be drawn between mere admission of sin and actual repentance. We're liable to deceive ourselves into thinking that having admitted our fault and having heard the good news of God's love, that we have repented. In reality, however, repentance entails a repatterning of our lives. Those who would repent must not only tell the truth about the sin they've committed, they must also set about soberly the task of finding out how to live differently. So, I guess to try to be a little more straightforward about this, like, um, this might seem really obvious, I guess. Maybe it is really obvious. But whether it's with relation to sexual sin or any other kind of sin, I've really started to to have an ear for, in my own self, and, and as I pay attention to other people, whether or not we're settling for merely having named our sin, I think it's, real, it's, a, it's a juncture at which it's really easy to be like, I'm good, right? To be like, I'm, I feel bad about it. I'm even bringing it out in the open and telling other people about it. And I think because, partly because that is, in fact, a feat to a degree, right? It is, in fact, very vulnerable to expose the brokenness in your life I think it's easy to be like, all oh, good, right, I'm, I'm good, but, but not actual make, actually make any kind of revision in your life. And uh, I don't know if I've seen it more, with more frequency with relation to sexual sin or not, but it's one of the places that I do see it the most frequently, um, is people coming and saying, I'm doing this or whatever it is, and they really are sorry. But over the years, I've started to realize that the question is not really whether they're sorry, and it's not even whether or not they're being honest about it, again, which are very important, but it's like, are you ready to do anything about it or not? basically is what I'm out here, or what I'm trying to mention here. All right, resignation, erosion of faith, and the growth of despair. Persons addicted to pornography, while not denying the sinfulness of the practice, are often resigned to a future in which they remain in bondage to sin. For such persons, the annunciation, the annunciations, for example, in the communion liturgy, as well as elsewhere, that Christ died for us while we were still sinners, or that Jesus has freed us from sin and death, Become, become invitations to a rather serious leap of faith. This is because sexual immorality atrophies Christian faith. Through the practice of sin, sexually immoral Christians come to believe less and less in God's freedom and power to deliver them. It's often inconceivable to persons addicted to pornography that their life could, in fact, be free of it. Despair, then, is as much or more the means by which Satan holds us in bondage to sin as is our desire for the particular sinful activity." So, I mean, to be more, to to make that specific to sexual sin, like lust is the thing that we're really vigilant about, rightfully so, when it comes to sexual sin. But despair, what I'm saying here is that despair is equally the enemy and equally as much the thing that needs um, remedy if we're actually going to help one another come out of addiction to pornography or a practice of fornication. Um, As such, the first task of brothers and sisters who would preach good news to those in bondage to pornography is often simply to say, you can stop looking at porn. You don't ever have to look at it again. Um, Moving on. Negative and positive dimensions of repentance, abstinence, and ministry. Um, The labor of abstinence. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Students who concretely restructure their lives in avoidance of sexual immorality pursuit and in pursuit of God, always successfully repent of their sin. Um, Over the course of today, I kept being like, do I really mean always? And I do. So we can come back to that if you want to. Um, But anyway, students who concretely restructure their lives in avoidance of sexual morality, and I'm missing a word here, but I want to say something like, and toward the pursuit of God, because that's what repentance repentance is, right? It's a turn away from something towards something else toward the pursuit of God, always successfully repent of their sin. The key words here are concretely restructure. All right? Those who do not, do not. The measures that are needed to repent of sins, of sexual immorality, are liable to seem almost as drastic as the measures Jesus commands in the Sermon on the Mount. For example, I have on many occasions invited male students with a porn habit to hand over their laptop and cell phone to the community, to have access to a computer and phone only at the Wesley and in the presence of other Christians. To be sure, this requires a thoroughgoing restructuring of students' lives, and many young men have balked at the invitation, but others have received it, and years later report that they continue to live in freedom from the sin of pornography. Similarly, we expect couples at Wesley to abstain from any form of sexual activity, activity prior to marriage. Those couples who are struggling with the sin of fornication are invited to implement curfews to see spending time together in private one-on-one settings, and if necessary, to abstain from kissing or any other physical touch that has consistently led them to fornicate. I love the word fornicate, by the way. It's been pretty fun in this paper. Um, If couples continue to fornicate, or if one or both of them is in the habit of looking at pornography, we invite them to break up. As always, students are free to accept or reject these invitations to repentance. That's an important sentence for those of you here No one can make you do that stuff. So the Wesley Foundation doesn't break people up. We just invite people to repent, and they they do or don't. It's up to you, you know. Uh, Plenty of students either become dishonest about what they are doing with their boyfriend or girlfriend, or simply leave Wesley in favor of a community, whether Christian or otherwise, who is less nosy and demanding. Such communities abound. However, many couples choose instead to submit to the teaching of the church. Um, By the way, uh, this is not terribly important. But it's some matter of interest to me on what basis we tell people they can't have sex before they get married. Find me the proof text for that in the Bible. There's not like a watertight proof text for that in the Bible. That doesn't mean that anyone's allowed to have sex before they get married. But like, it's on, it's on the authority not only of scripture, but the way that the church has received scripture throughout history, that we are actually able to forcibly make the claim that marriage is for a man and a woman who have that sex is for a man and a woman who have taken vows of marriage, right? Um, anyway, many couples choose instead to submit to the teaching of the church. For example, one of the first couples who asked me to lead them through premarital counseling at Wesley confessed in an early meeting that they were sexually active. I say one of the first couples here, so don't go guessing who they are. Um, that could be any number of couples, all right? Confess in early meeting that they were sexually active. I told them that while their sin was understandable, especially given that they were upon the threshold of marriage, um, that they must commit to abstain from sex until their wedding day. I did so on the basis of the marriage vows in the book of worship, that's the bow, um, which comprised the crux of the premarital curriculum, as well as with reference to Ephesians chapter 5, explaining that their abstinence was an exercise of, selfless, of the selfless Christ imaging love to which all married Christians are called. The couple agreed to abstain and reported that the interval of sexual abstinence deepened their understanding of the significance of their marital vows. I'm cracking myself up in my own little like, and it worked, okay? <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> yes, I'm doing my job. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I think that, um, and, and, and overall what I would say is that that's what makes the, like the vows of marriage are what makes the injunction on christians to not have sex unless they're married really coherent it's not the only thing that makes it coherent right but in the sense that in our marital vows we're doing something that is more astonishing than it's like easy to recognize anymore living in the society that we do where marriage is increasingly thought of as at a couple's convenience and for their own personal self-fulfillment. But like if you look at the way that we articulate what, what marriage really is in the vows, especially with reference to like its permanence, its sickness and in health, um, for better or worse, I mean, there's very little that could happen to you that your spouse could do, that you could find out about your spouse, et cetera, that doesn't fall under the category. Like, that would be the kind of thing that make you want to leave them that doesn't fall under the category of worse, right? For better or worse, and forsaking all others, et cetera, and until you're dead, all right? So that's wild that we say that that's what we're going to do, that we ask for God, and, and that we claim that God, that there's an ontological reality to it, that the two become one, right? So at the end of the the uh, one of the, one of the most important, to me, parts of the marriage ceremony is when the pastor says, what God has joined together, let no man separate. This is a quotation from Jesus explaining to people that no one's allowed to get divorced in the Gospels. And if I'm not mistaken, the church says amen at that point. The labor of ministry. So, so far, I've been like, part of repenting is not doing stuff. And in this next section, I'm like, also repenting is doing stuff, all right? So, this is the the positive aspect of repentance. Thieves must give up stealing, rather let them labor and work honestly with their own hands so as to have something to share with the needy. A more subtle pitfall for those who repent of sexual immorality is the assumption that repentance is only a negative effort, as if it consisted simply in not looking at porn or not having sex with one's girlfriend. However, repentance is ultimately a positive activity. In repentance, we turn from activities of damage leading to death to practices of gift leading to life. So from an activity of doing harm to ourselves and others and the world to an activity of giving ourselves. Um, We're saved from sin and death in order to become participants in Jesus' own ministry of reconciliation. So what it is, in other words, that people get that they repent toward is servanthood effectively. I mean, it's ministry. Like, there isn't anywhere to go away from sin except into a life of imitating Christ washing his disciples' feet. Does that make sense? And giving himself for the life of the world. That's what you are turning toward when you turn away from sin. As such, in the absence of substantive labors of service, even the most heroic efforts to repent of sexual immorality are liable to devolve into an ironic and potentially neurotic self-absorption. In short, college students who want to stop looking at porn or having sex with their boyfriends need to get involved in ministry. They need to become servants of other Christians, witnesses to unbelievers, and disciple makers. Likewise, in our community's effort to share the labor of repentance, we never simply ask, is so-and-so still looking at porn? But to what extent is so-and-so offering his or her specific gifts for the edification of the body?